Welcome to What Matters Most, SANS Capital's podcast series in which we explore some of the trends and businesses that are propelling the pace of global innovation and changing the way we live and work today and into the future. Today, we will speak with two of SANS Capital's research analysts, Baron Martin and Catherine Ocon, about DoorDash, the food delivery company that in December of 2020 held one of the year's biggest public offerings. So I want to thank both Baron and Catherine for joining us today as we take a deep dive into DoorDash. Catherine, I'll start with you. Before we dive into the company specifically, can you tell us a little bit more about the world of food delivery and the logistical hurdles encountered by companies in their effort to deliver not just food, but all kinds of products? Absolutely, Kevin. In the U.S. alone, we've got close to a million restaurants. There are so many different potential pickup points that a courier might have to be directed to. Once an order is placed, that courier has to be dispatched within minutes to make sure that they go and they are able to pick up the food while it's still hot and can get it to the consumer in a reasonable amount of time. And this happens thousands of times a day. But a lot of the times that it's happening, it's concentrated around mealtimes, of course. So there are sharp spikes in demand throughout the day. You have to be able to manage your couriers to make sure that you have enough people when the demand is highest and then be able to pull them back when you don't need them as much. And it's really the most needed now form of delivery. So it's fundamentally different from what we typically think of, I think, when we think of e-commerce. So it's really, really tough. But the beauty of it from an investment perspective is that once you've built a network that can actually handle all of those problems and is optimized for food delivery, and then you have a density of couriers and restaurants and consumers as well, that can become a competitive advantage in and of itself because you can become more profitable with each order as you have more couriers that are closer to the restaurants, that are closer to the consumers. And eventually, basically, because you already have the infrastructure, you are able to then eventually layer on new verticals like the convenience and the grocery store verticals and eventually have a much more thorough consumer proposition, which is really interesting and exciting. Okay, great. Thanks. Baron, you've covered a lot of businesses around the world that have the same sort of footprint. You can tell us about how those experiences with e-commerce and logistics businesses in other regions have helped shape your views about this particular business and this particular business space. Sure. Thanks, Kevin. So at Sins Capital, we've been investing in e-commerce for about the past 20 years or so. Our first foray was back in the early 2000s. I think what we've seen in the world of e-commerce is that Importantly, more and more, it's about owning the full stack of the different services. And particularly in areas where different pieces of that stack are really hard to execute. In the case of DoorDash, logistics is key. And what we'd seen in food delivery in the early 2000s up until about 2015, 2016 was this concept of a pure marketplace where you connected a fragmented base of merchants that offered delivery with consumers that wanted food delivered. In an old world of delivery, that looked like getting food from your favorite Chinese food restaurant, from your favorite pizza place, but you didn't really have broad choice. So with the advent of own logistics, in the case of DoorDash and other online food delivery companies, really what enables first and foremost is broad selection. And what we've seen is that as you open up selection across e-commerce globally, it not only increases the amount of people that want to use the product, but it significantly can increase the frequency of the service. So as we think about food delivery and logistics, it's first and foremost about increasing choice. It's about having all your favorite restaurants in the neighborhood easily deliverable to your doorstep. 
The second piece of it is that with scale, and if you can build an efficient logistics system, you can actually take the cost of delivery down significantly. And this is certainly the case with local commerce and local food delivery. Food delivery is incredibly difficult. It's about coordinating millions of couriers with millions of restaurants and making sure you are piping into the closest courier at the right moment so that they can show up at the restaurant to pick up the food right when it's ready, and then to batch multiple orders together so you can deliver it efficiently to consumers in the fastest possible time at the lowest possible cost. That's really part of the secret sauce to what we've seen with DoorDash and other leading online food delivery companies and local e-commerce companies globally. All right, great. So, Baron, maybe you could give us a little background on when you first heard about this company. What did the business look like when it was just getting started? Sure, Kevin. So, I actually first met with DoorDash back in about 2017. I was at a public-private conference and was introduced to an executive at the company. Increasingly, we're finding the lines between the public and the private markets are blurring. So, if you want to know the public companies you're investing in really well, you have to know their private counterparts well. So even back in 2017, we didn't have an ability to invest in DoorDash, but we wanted to get to know that business because we thought food delivery would be a compelling space. At that point in time, DoorDash was a distant number three in the U.S. food delivery market. What was interesting when we sat down with the executive to talk about the business and the strategy was that while the company was number three overall, they were really executing a different approach than their peers. And that approach was centered on going after suburban markets first and foremost, which was counterintuitive at the time. I think the consensus view was that food delivery was an urban service. The other approach was to knock as much cost out of the delivery experience as you could, so really optimizing around nickels and dimes. And then the third piece was around eventually moving into all categories of local commerce. So even back in 2017, they had this clear differentiated strategy. And while the company was behind at the time, was taking share and starting to catch up. Now, fast forward to 2019, when Sands Capital was just launching its mid to late stage private growth strategy, we had been building that relationship for a couple of years and we had the opportunity to actually invest in that business around spring of 2019. So from that 2017 time to the 2019 time, DoorDash was able to go from a distant third to actually being about tied overall in terms of market share with the two incumbent players, Grubhub and Uber Eats in the U.S. market. It's really a testament to its differentiated strategy around own logistics, around optimized logistics, around starting with the suburbs and then building in from there. I think it's fair to say that every new investment we make informs maybe the next couple of investments. You have some insight that you gather from covering these companies. Catherine, what can you tell us about some of the lessons you learned as an investor from your experience working with DoorDash that might help you find the next great company out there? One of the things that I've been very impressed with looking at DoorDash is the strength of the management team and the vision that they have and the long-term mindset and approach that they're taking. They're not a team that's worried necessarily about how the market's going to receive whatever numbers they release in the next quarter. They've got this very clear vision of being the real leader in local last mile logistics. And they have a clear reason why they started out with restaurant delivery. Some of it comes back to what I was talking about earlier with the fact that restaurants are the hardest problem to solve for. 
But once you've solved for that problem, there's a lot that you can do with the network that you've built to address it. And they've explained this process and how they built the business, how they thought about it, and more importantly, where they think that they can get to in the next three, five, 10 years. And they're very thoughtful about it. Darren, same question to you. Any insights you've taken away from your coverage or work with this company? Kevin, I think that historically, particularly for new markets where you're at the early stages of market creation, we have probably over-indexed to looking at the pure just market share leader at the time and assuming that that company is the leader in the likely winner. And I think that the lesson with DoorDash is that when you are so early in market development, you've really got to get to know all the companies out there and build a holistic view of the space not just on a country level basis, but on a global basis to see what's working. Because oftentimes companies are approaching the market with different strategies, have different abilities to execute and drive costs down. So if you're not paying attention to the entire field and thinking through what is most likely to win over time, you may actually invest in the wrong long-term leader just by purely focusing on headline market shares. Makes sense. Very disruptive market for sure. So keep your eye on the competition because they could be the leader someday. That makes sense. So now let's switch over to the specific investment. As we mentioned in the introduction, DoorDash made headlines when it went public in late 2020. You both have a unique perspective having worked with the company since those early days. But I'll start with you, Baron. Maybe give us an idea of why the company ultimately decided to go public. Sure. So what we've really seen the past decade is that on average, companies are staying private for longer, particularly technology companies. And I think there's a lot of good reasons for that. Companies can grow much faster than they ever could before. So I remember when I started Sands Capital back in 2008, we used to think a company growing 30, 40, 50% was a hyper growth business. And we're finding nowadays is that companies can grow 100%, 200%, 300% a year at scale, and they can sustain those sorts of high growth rates. So in that sort of environment, management teams, they really want to focus on executing that growth plan and alleviating as many distractions as possible. So I think that's one of the reasons why companies are staying private for longer is because you can have the ability to execute, really invest for the long term, have some volatility in your business and not have the distractions that can come with the public markets. I think the other side of that is that companies really want to stay out of the limelight of competition. So even though companies can grow much faster today, that means their competitors can actually copy great ideas even faster too. So in the case of DoorDash and other businesses, staying private enables you to grow quickly, stay out of the limelight competitors. But still over time, companies want to go public. It's a big milestone for the business. It's important to monetize the value of stock options and ownership in the business for a broad swath of employees, for a broad swath of stakeholders. So companies do want to get public. And in the case of DoorDash, it was just about timing. And when DoorDash went public, it had hit the milestones that many companies are not looking for when they do want to get public. That's clear market leadership. It's visibility into operations. So having a much better picture into what you can and are likely to grow on a quarterly and an annual basis. Importantly for many businesses too, the public stock price is a more tangible currency. So in cases where companies get big enough where they really could make acquisitions, it is important to have the ability to do that in a potentially much more seamless way. And as we look at the global food delivery and local e-commerce space, it's highly fragmented. There are a lot of country-level, regional-level leaders, and we could see over time the opportunity to consolidate this on a global basis. So 
I do think in the case of DoorDash, and we see this with many other businesses as well, being public can actually help to enable that consolidation to happen. Thanks. So, Catherine, you were an early champion of investing in this company when it became public, participating in the IPO. Can you give us some sense of why you thought this would be an attractive offering? Yeah, of course. So it starts with just that vision that I was just talking about, which is that they have this opportunity to really be the leader in local last mile on demand convenience and logistics. And that is really exciting because I think that as common as food delivery might seem these days, there's actually a whole lot of other use cases that are out there. So there's opportunity to grow that core business for sure. And we're very excited about that. But I think that there's a lot more opportunity for DoorDash to eventually just be the on-demand need it now for whatever. It doesn't have to be just meals that are coming from a restaurant. So that's great because it means that there's years of growth ahead of the company and Then when we looked and saw what the company had already built, going back to the leadership and the way that they had been able to move from that number three to really becoming a very, very clear leader over the course of a few years with a differentiated strategy, that was really exciting too. Because number one, leadership is obviously one of our investment criteria. So we think about that very carefully, but then also just seeing everything that they had been able to achieve, looking at the market differently, taking a non-consensus viewpoint. We were very intrigued by that as well. And the fact that they truly got into scale by the point that we were looking at the company for the IPO. So they'd been able to generate positive EBITDA for a few quarters by that point, and they were still really growing tremendously and continuing to invest in new markets. They were just beginning to get into verticals like convenience and grocery. So when we just looked at all of that, it seemed like it was still a company that we could own for many, many years as it continued to grow really quickly. Let's dig a little deeper into the growth then, since you brought that up. There's no doubt that more than a year of quarantine has definitely been a tailwind for the adoption of food delivery services. So, Catherine, as the world slowly begins to reopen, touch wood, and looking at the end, hopefully, of the pandemic, are you concerned at all about DoorDash's growth to the future? Do you expect it to stagnate? How are you thinking about that? No, I don't. I expect that it will certainly decelerate from the rate that we saw in 2020. And Kevin, you referenced at the beginning of the podcast that the industry had grown close to 140% over the year. DoorDash itself grew over 200%. So it continues to very clearly outgrow the industry. And I mean, growing your gross order value, GOV, over 200% is a really impressive number and a very high rate of growth that would be hard for any company to sustain. So I'm certainly not expecting that that's going going to continue for the next few years. But I think that it will be able to continue to grow in that, call it 20 to 50% annual growth rate over the next five years. And that's for a few reasons. Stepping back, when we were putting together the investment case, one of the things that we were thinking a lot about is just how much demand is there in a normalized environment for food delivery? And we looked at it from a number of different ways. One of the things that we did was we actually looked to other countries, international markets where food delivery is actually much more developed than the United States, like China and Korea, for instance. And people in those countries are ordering food delivery multiples more times a week and a month than what we see ordering here in the United States. And part of that is because it is taking share from meals that you would have typically eaten out in restaurants, but it's also taking share from 
from meals that you would have cooked at home yourself or maybe picked up something in a salad bar coming home from work, that type of thing. And the reason that it's taking share is because it's just so much more convenient. If you're single and you're living in an urban area, it's really easy. If you're in a suburb and you're feeding a family of four, there's nothing easier than having something dropped off at your door rather than having to get in the car and either go take two hours out to eat a meal or pick something up yourself. So I think that there's plenty of opportunity for food that is delivered to continue to be a greater part of people's weekly and monthly habits. And one of the concerns that we've heard about food delivery is that there's just been this huge pull forward into 2020, and it's going to be very, very difficult for the companies to ever be able to achieve similar growth rates to that. But what's happened in reality is there has been a pull forward but it's not a zero-sum game. DoorDash has gotten more customers in 2020 more quickly than it would have without COVID and more cost-effectively too. And what we've seen so far is that the customers that they acquired in 2020 are behaving the same way that cohorts that they acquired in 2015, 2016, et cetera, are behaving. And even the company's most mature cohorts are continuing to increase their frequency of ordering. So we think that basically what 2020 has done for DoorDash is given them a much larger customer base And those customers will continue to grow their use of DoorDash, which means that the company itself will continue to grow. And that's just thinking about the food delivery, the restaurant delivery portion of things. The other big development that they had in 2020 was beginning to introduce convenience providers, both third parties that they're partnering with, national chains, and also their own proprietary dash marts. So that's very interesting. And it's an entirely new vertical for them to continue to make a bigger part of the company. And they've also begun to partner with some grocers as well. So I think that there's a lot of levers that they are still able to pull that will continue to drive growth. And those are just things that they're doing right now. There's also the opportunity for them to get into just more generic delivery of things like a package of a dress that you might have ordered from a local department store or something like that. So yes, the growth will not continue to be 200% for the next five years, but there's still going to be plenty of it. Well, let's dig into that a little deeper. The best businesses often iterate off a fairly solid platform and expand into other complementary businesses. Catherine, you touched on it already, but what do you think is next for DoorDash? And more importantly, what does the DoorDash ecosystem of the future look like? Yeah, I think that the ecosystem of the future is just local last mile delivery of anything that a consumer could potentially want. And part of that is everything that we just talked about. It's layering new verticals. They have signed partnerships with companies like Macy's and Petco, for instance. So they are starting to get into some of the more traditional retail players as well. Those are still very, very early. But clearly there is an interest on the part of the national partners and there's an interest on the part of the consumers. And part of the reason that there is the interest on the part of consumers is because DoorDash has a very high percentage of their users who are paying for DashPass, which is $10 a month. What it offers 
is you have no delivery fee and reduced service fees. And it applies not just to the food restaurant portion of the business, but it applies to the other verticals as well. So they've got these consumers locked into, they're already thinking of DoorDash as the place that I go to to get things on demand. And then they get this magic thing that happens when they open up the app one day and they see, oh my gosh, I thought that I was going to have to run out to 7-Eleven myself to go get a case of Pepsi or whatever, but it turns out I can actually order it through DoorDash and I don't have to pay the delivery fee because I've already got a Dash Pass subscription. So I think that consumers will continue to view the company as today. I do think that most of us think of it as just the go-to place for food delivery, but into the future, everybody's going to be thinking of it as the go-to place for delivery of anything that I want. Same question to you, Baron. What do you see as next for DoorDash and what does the future of DoorDash look like in your mind? As we think about DoorDash, I do believe they can move into a broad swath of local e-commerce. As we think about the strategic assets they have to enable that, they've got the lowest cost, high speed, high on-time efficiency logistics network for anything delivered in less than an hour in the U.S. They have, as Catherine mentioned, a subscription service, Dash Pass, which is effectively viewed as a sunk cost by its users as a look to buy, not just in restaurants, but into other categories as well. And they have the DoorDash app, which consumers have built a mindshare around of need it now. Those three power positions led by a great team really give us a lot of conviction that they can move into new verticals, convenience grocery being the biggest opportunities likely, but they can also add on some smaller adjacent opportunities, which together could become a large opportunity. I think the other piece of it is they've mostly focused on serving consumers in the sense of how they directly monetize, but I think there's more opportunities to work even closer with restaurants. So DoorDash started with the core food delivery to consumer products. What they're now doing is enabling restaurants to actually build a direct-to-customer presence. And this is a mega trend we're seeing in e-commerce right now. And so DoorDash introduced a service called Drive, which enables you to have white label delivery and pickup through the restaurant's website. And then about a year ago, they introduced a service called Storefronts, which enables online ordering. And I think if we think through the path of what else they can introduce, they can introduce a POS system, they can eventually introduce more effective restaurant management system products. So I think you could actually see DoorDash eventually start to move into software-like revenue streams by offering merchants different services. Those are the key areas that we see today. As we mentioned before, we also think that DoorDash has the opportunity to really consolidate the local e-commerce and restaurant delivery market globally. All those give DoorDash the ability to grow for, we think, long periods of time, in addition to just that core restaurant delivery opportunity continuing to grow. So great. You provided a lot of information about the company, and it sounds like information that's well-known by investors. But we're in the insight business, for sure. So maybe you could tell us, what is it that investors don't fully appreciate yet about this company? I actually think that it's a lot of what we just talked about (laughs) in terms of what the company could look like over the next five years. And part of the reason that that is, is because we do have the luxury of taking this five-year perspective and being able to dream the dream and think about products and services that might be really nascent today. Like convenience and grocery, huge markets, 
hundreds of billions of dollars are spent in those markets every year annually. It's really exciting. The reality is they just launched those two businesses back in the middle of 2020. Now, they've done really well. DoorDash has already become the leading player in convenience since then because they were able to just layer it on top of what they've already built. But still, if I were looking at this business and just trying to think about the money that we could make in the stock over the next year, I don't think that I would be thinking about convenience and grocery. And I wouldn't be thinking about the potential that they have to give all of these other value-added services to not just restaurants but other local retailers as well. I mean, it can be things like the coffee shop that I frequent down the street has created their own marketplace, helping them to sell that or flower shops, things like that. So it's everything that we talked about. And then the combination of being able to actually give the company the time to realize and build all of those ambitions as well. Excellent. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, very interesting industry and a very interesting business for sure. We covered a lot of ground on this podcast and hopefully everybody learned a little more about DoorDash and especially why we think it's such a special company and have so much conviction in it here at Sands Capital. Before we close, though, Baron and Catherine, I'm sure many of our listeners would be curious to know a little bit more about you two as investors, what drives you? Maybe start with you, Catherine. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what ultimately led you to Sands Capital? I joined Sands Capital in 2007. When I first started at the firm, I had no idea that what we do on the investment team was actually a job. I was hired in a very different role, although it was probably multiple roles. I was employee 38. and Whenever anything was needed, people would just raise their hands and step up. Partially because we were so small, I got a ton of exposure to the investment team and Importantly, I was on a lot of the email distribution lists and I started to read those thoroughly every single day. And I realized that what we were doing at the firm was just incredibly interesting because we are investing in some of what we think are the greatest companies in the world. And they are frequently companies that touch our daily lives. When I first came into Sands, I fully intended to go to law school. In my very first conversation with Frank Sr., he told me that was a horrible decision and I should definitely not become a lawyer because he didn't know many lawyers who were happy with their lives. Apologies to any lawyers who might be listening to this. But I did listen to what he said. And when I combined that with how interested I was with everything else that was happening around the firm, I did eventually leave Sands, but to go to business school rather than go to law school. I came back two years later and I've been a member of the team since about 2017. And I think that that's actually one of the wonderful things about Sands that I have been given the latitude to really figure out where my passions are and not only where I can serve the firm best, but also where I am most engaged and feel like I am the strongest contributor. Excellent. Baron, same question to you. And you also have a unique story about immersing yourself in a particular market. You could share that. Sure, Kevin. So I came from a little bit of a different background as Catherine. I was one of those students where I always wanted to be an investor. I used to always love to look at the stock quotes in the paper newspapers we all used to have and think about how great it is that we have the ability to invest in and own pieces of great businesses. So I went to undergrad university and was part of the investment club at Washington Lee University. And from there, really planned a path of how can I become an investor over time, professional investor. I was on the eve of accepting a investment banking offer to start post-undergrad. I saw the opportunity at Sands Capital. So 
ended up turning down that offer, taking a little bit of a risk, interviewing with the team at Sands, and was fortunate enough to have an offer. And really since then, I've worked mostly on our technology team, on technology businesses, and have an affinity for marketplace internet companies. I think it's just a great way to add value to a broad swath of the economy, a broad swath of consumers, and a broad swath of business owners. So when I joined Sands back in 2008, we were really just about to evolve from a U.S. public equity manager into a global public-private equity investor. So I really saw an opportunity in building out a lot of our investing capabilities outside the U.S. and particularly in emerging markets. So back in 2009, we launched our global growth funds. And the thesis we had back then was that these businesses would be so much more powerful than their U.S. European counterparts because the experience of legacy retail which is so much more inferior to what we're used to in the U.S. We've got great malls, we've got great big box retailers, we've got great local merchants. And the whole ecosystem has not been built out in places like China and India. So I actually moved over to China back in 2013 and lived in Beijing for about six months to really get to know the ecosystem of companies in China. And eventually traveled and spent a lot of time in India and Southeast Asia and Japan to get to know the different businesses there. And then through that process... Really started to see companies staying private for longer and found that my passion really was working more closely with companies and teams. Both of you gave us a nice idea of your path to where you are today through Sands Capital. What piece of advice would you give to an investor considering a career in investment management? I can start out, Kevin. So I think your ambition is to be the best in the world. It's something you have to love what you're doing. In the case of investing, I would encourage young, newer investors, less experienced investors, to really look at the different philosophies out there and find a philosophy that they really believe in. And that can either happen through books, it can happen through mentorship, it can happen through direct work programs, but really try to deliberately figure out which investing philosophy aligns. I think that two things that are really critical for this job are a love of learning and creativity. And maybe I'll talk about the second one because I think that that might be surprising for some people. I think that when a lot of people think about investing, they think about just hard numbers and math and being in Excel spreadsheets all the time. And it's true that we do spend a decent amount of time in Excel. But when we are thinking about what this business can look like over the next five years, it's looking to the future and trying to come up with some idea and a vision for what this business can look like in five years. And five years is a really long period of time. And you have to have some element of a creative mind where you can be able to dream the dream for lack of a better phrase and think really big picture about how a company can transform both itself and potentially the world over the next five years. Our founder, Frank Sands Sr., once described to me this job as being at a perpetual business school. We get to come in here and sit down and just learn and think really deep thoughts about a handful of what we think are the best businesses in the world. Great. Well, you both mentioned reading. So I think that's a good pivot to my final question here. Everyone's favorite fun fact. What are you each currently reading? I'm actually rereading one of my favorite history books right now called How Great Generals Win. It's a history of military strategy and goes through the 10 best commanders over time, starting with Hannibal and Scipio Africanus over in Rome, all the way through MacArthur in the U.S. 
what this book really advises is in warfare, you never go into direct frontal conflict. So military strategy is all about the element of surprise and doing something different. And these types of lessons are highly relevant as we think through strategy and think through how our businesses can win over time and what that roadmap can look like. So Catherine, how about you? What are you currently reading? Well, I am currently in a world that is far removed from military strategy, or maybe not now that I think about it, but I am just wrapping up the company I keep, which is Leonard Lauder's biography. And Estee Lauder happens to be another company that I cover at Sands. There are a number of books that have been written either on companies specifically or individuals who founded or were transformative to companies. And it's so fascinating to read them because you get a much deeper understanding of how the company came to be in the position that it is today than you would if you just start keeping up with the news and reading earnings transcripts and following along with what's going on today. So this goes all the way back to the early days of Estee Lauder and has given me a much deeper appreciation for, honestly, some of my complaints with the company when it comes to some of their current distribution strategies. So it's been a great read and a fun read as well. Great. Thank you both, Baron and Catherine. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed learning more about this fascinating topic. And I hope you learned a little bit more about Baron and Catherine themselves. And we appreciate you taking the time to listen today. The views expressed are the opinion of Sands Capital Management and are not intended as a forecast, a guarantee of future results, investment recommendations, or an offer to buy or sell any securities. The views expressed are current as of April 1st, 2021, and are subject to change. This material may contain forward-looking statements which are subject to uncertainties outside of Sands Capital's control. The securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased or recommended for advisory clients. There is no assurance that any securities discussed will remain in the portfolio. You should not assume that any investment is or will be profitable. A company's fundamentals or earnings growth is no guarantee that its share price will increase. 